This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. A huge welcome to the first episode of The Politics of Everything. I'm your host, Amber Danes, and today I'm interviewing Natalie Goldman on the politics of flexible work. As CEO of Flex Careers, Natalie walks the walk and today she'll talk the talk too on a subject that affects every family unit at some stage. Flex Careers was recently named one of Westpac's 200 Businesses of Tomorrow and has a growing list of big company names and small businesses putting their hat in the ring when it comes to flexible working arrangements. As a working mother who has, for the bulk of her own career, worked in full-time corporate roles, Nellie Goldman had an ample chance to experience the barriers, the challenges, and the immense opportunities of more flexible work, a subject very close to my heart too. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks for having me. So let's get into this. Uh, The notion of flexible work is definitely on the rise. What does it mean for the future of businesses and also employees, really? That's what we're most focused on usually. Absolutely. So flexible work is often considered something in the realm of working mothers, but the reality is, is that flexible work is something that impacts employees at any stage of their life within a work, within a corporate or a business of any kind. Whether you break it down from a generational perspective, when you look at millennials, they're wanting to have more work-life balance. They're wanting to not just be a slave to the job. They want to have a life outside of work. Uh, then you go to your um, next generation, which is usually where you've got the families and Generation X. And sure, when you become a parent, flexibility becomes quite essential to be able to balance both work responsibilities and family responsibilities. What we're starting to see more and more of, and I know I'm part of this um, area as well, is that also aging parents. So caring responsibilities, the sandwich generation, as we're sometimes called. And then you've got your baby boomers. Sometimes they're called dial it down as people who are still wanting to work, but maybe not in that traditional nine to five, or let's be honest, that doesn't exist anymore, eight to six (laughs) reality. And so they're wanting to have more flexibility. The other thing that we're starting to see is more humanizing work. And what what do I mean by that? What we mean is that people are starting to see that work needs to have a purpose And that every employee that walks through the door isn't just a number, that they're a human being that have needs that change over time. And if we're going to retain really great talent in our organizations, we need to respect the fact that they're going to need different things at different times. So flexibility may be considered something as a future of work, but we're seeing it more and more today more so than ever before. Is there any statistics around that? I mean, you know, just in, the, in your position, you know, have you seen a certain increase in, in the number of businesses that are coming on board even in the last 12 months since you've been CEO? Absolutely. You know, we've seen a massive spike from, from the number of um, clients that have come on board with us, some that already do um, have flexible work practices but maybe don't advertise it very well through to organisations that really didn't consider flexibility as something that they wanted to do but have realised that in order for them to attract and retain top talent, that that this is the way to do it in such a competitive uh, marketplace. 
Australia's talent pool is tiny um, with the changes with the 457 visas recently, especially it's becoming harder and harder to find really good people. So yes, you know, salary is a very important one when it comes to the kind of drivers that make people decide where they're going to work. But more and more people are deciding that flexible work options are the kinds of things that really make it really attractive for them to come on board. So it's not just about money. It's obviously about so much more. Absolutely. Your career background is in learning and development within corporate Australia. Mm-hmm. What did you witness from inside those corporate trenches maybe over the past decade or so, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of changing workplace culture and what, what's required of not just men and women but, you know, I guess every generation? What, what, you, what have you seen? Yeah, look, um, I mentioned this just before, but I think there's been a real shift in corporate Australia and corporate land everywhere really around the sense of purpose. So more and more, um, it all stemmed from the corporate social responsibility days uh, where people felt that they needed to have more of a connection with something more than just the bottom line. Um, then the triple bottom line came in around uh, that kind of conversation that you needed to have more of an ethical impact, looking at the environmental impact, the social impact as well well as, of course, your financial impact. So what that sort of brewed was really the ability for people to see that, you know, the the people that they work with aren't just human capital, so to speak, or a number, as I mentioned before, but they are actual human beings. And so then the next iteration from the corporate social responsibility was the purpose-driven organisation. So there's the whole Simon Sinek why conversation and those kinds of things around leadership has really changed to understand that we need to have visions. We need to have uh, some kind of mission that really gets people along on the journey. And what is that vision often is there's a purpose. Again, it's not just about making lots of money for shareholders. It's about we're making a difference in people's lives and how is this organization actually doing that? And so that's really changed a lot of the organizational culture in many companies around how they function and even how they how they sit. So agile working, we're starting to see more and more. We've got a number of clients down at Barangaroo and most of them are either hot desking slash agile working where no one actually has a specific desk or there are no offices really. It's really collaborative, a lot of community work. And these kinds of things as well as technology have really made a massive impact on how we're working today. Sure, the majority of organizations out there aren't quite at that space yet, uh, but we're learning some really key lessons from those companies. That's really interesting. I guess, um, you know, flexible work has, you know, always been seen as something might be more part-time or contractual. Mm-hmm. How do you cr- progress your career realistically? I mean, it sounds like it's a mixture of, yes, the technology and the, and the beautiful working environments and the flexibility help, but really at the end of the day, are you going to get those pay rises? Are you going to get those management roles if you are seen as a flex worker? Okay, so there are two really key important things. Um, firstly, there is a misconception that flexible work is just part-time or contract. Flexible work can mean so many things. I've been working full-time flexible for many, many years. So flexibility really, if you look at it from a definition perspective, is more around that both the employee and the employer negotiate where, when, and how that individual does their job. So from a practical, tangible perspective, we're looking at can a person who works full-time flexible work maybe a day or two part-time, oh, sorry, from home. There is part-time, of course, but let's say you might not have flexibility with part-time. Your employer might say you have to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, eight or six. 
That's not flexible. That's just part-time. So it's about understanding that flexibility can mean compressed work weeks, so doing um, nine days over a fortnight, but the same amount of hours. It could mean work from home. It could mean different start and finish times. So in a practical sense, that could be starting um, at 7 a.m. and then finishing at 4 instead of the 8 till 6 or 9 till 5 or whatever it is, depending on the hours. So there's a really big conversation around all of those different aspects as well. The second aspect is around previously, and I'm completely part of this space, where when I negotiated my first flexible role, I expected, if not negotiated, and I know it's crazy, less of a salary because of the fact that I knew I was getting flexibility. Now, that still exists, and I think often that's because women are the ones who are doing it, and they feel, and I know I felt like this, that, wow, I'm getting this amazing flexibility, so I feel like I need to give up something, such as salary, but I'm here to tell you, you shouldn't and, and don't need to do that either because flexible working is not something that's a benefit, so to speak, inverted commas. It's a way of working. So if you work in different offices and need to go to client sites, that's no different to working from home on that day. So why should you be compensated any differently? Oh, I totally agree. So, I mean, yeah. how, do you, how do you get um, – I guess it, it does sort of feel like it's a bit of a pioneering stage though. I mean, mm. a lot of organisations would still be in that position where they're getting candidates who are great, but they want flexibility. So it is the salary that takes the cut or it is that ability to attend those – you know, I guess development opportunities, conferences, whatever it might be, um, which actually puts you in the stead for the next level. So what what can be done? There is, uh, uh, excuse me, the pun, flexibility in the flexibility. So what I mean by that, it's a two-way street. So yes, you need to negotiate and need to negotiate hard. My advice there is, you know, know your worth and don't go beneath it. If there is an organisation that is not prepared to pay uh, for you for that the level that you believe that you should be paid at and I'm saying realistically of course um, you know that's probably not the organization that you're wanting to work for whether there's flexibility there or not but at the same time yes it is still early days and requires a lot of education and negotiation so it's a sales pitch really so what's the value that you're bringing to that organization How do you then compensate in regards to the fact that you need to sometimes be at those professional development opportunities and other things? Well, sometimes you will need to do things where you'll need to get extra care for your child or or if if you don't have children where you might need to give up something that you would normally do on that afternoon where you'd be working flexibly. There are sacrifices that have to be made. It is a two-way street. I'm not suggesting it's an easy thing at all, but be prepared to really pioneer on this and push hard because it is achievable. At the end of the day, it's a business case. If you can prove your business case as to why you need to be employed by that company and why they need to pay you at that level and this is how you would like to work and you can negotiate that really hard, they probably see you as an asset from the fact that you can negotiate that hard. So don't be afraid of putting yourself out there. That's great advice. I mean, just to sort of uh, tie up that conversation or that angle, is this something where, um, you know, it's mainly women? Are there men wanting flexibility? Where are we at with the, the gendering yeah. of, of the flexible work conversation? Where are we at? Look, the reality where we're at today is flexibility is still a very female domain. Our society still puts women as the primary caregivers, so subsequently when women choose to have children and and 
they still want to work, flexibility for them is an essential. It, it's a must-have because without it, it's virtually impossible. And many women have been locked out and continue to be locked out of the workforce because of the lack of flexibility in, in roles. However, having said that, I see this as a, a, a three-stage process. There is so much more conversation these days around flexibility and the benefit that it can have in an organisation broadly speaking. And so companies are starting to see that this isn't just a women's only domain issue. Admittedly, when you post an ad online and you put the word flexible in there, yeah, you'll still get 98% women responding because that's where we are today. But organizations are starting to see the trend that, well, flexibility is for parents, not just women, but men. So there are organizations that are actively focusing on, you know, parental leave for men, getting men to work flexibly as well, those kinds of things, especially when they're going, um, when their partners are having children. Then you've also got the conversation of the next wave, which is flexibility for everyone. So is the flexibility enabling parents to be able to balance their home and work responsibilities or is the flexibility enabling a cultural change so there's more forward-thinking organizations that see it as the bigger organizational benefit that's where gender is taken out of the picture and that's where i think we're going to end up but we're not there yet and very few organizations are there absolutely <laughs> so are there any tangible um, examples of companies doesn't have to be in australia but anywhere that it actually are trying this out and saying to men not just you you know two weeks paternity leave or three months off but actually later on saying you can do a four-day week you can do what flexible working women are doing look look most of the professional services the banks most of the large corporates are doing that or saying that in their policies I'm not going to name names here. However, the reality is what's written or promised, inverted commas, doesn't always come to pass. The main reason is not so much the organizations, but it's the attitudes of the people within the organization. So what do I mean by that? So I was speaking with the general manager of um, head of talent at one of the big four banks who works very flexibly. He has two young children, one of which has autism. And so he's required and wants to be there to support uh, his partner um, and their son at um, therapy sessions and whatnot because he feels that she works as well, his partner, so why should it all be her? So, And he wants to be actively involved. But, you know, if he leaves work um, at 4.30, let's say, to go pick up the kids from um, after-school care and then take their son to um, the specialist, he'll get comments. And he's the general manager of a very, you know, very senior role of the bank. That's disappointing. And he will get comments from colleagues going, oh, you have an early mark. Now, he got in at 6 a.m. that morning knowing that he would leave early and then that night after the kids go to bed, he will be back online again um, and... You know, he'll probably work weekends as well and whatnot. But the point is, it's those comments that still exist. So really what we need to start focusing on is not so much, you know, the policies, which are very important to put in place, of course, but it's also shifting those attitudes within organizations, particularly towards men. It's now become very acceptable for women to work flexibly, to leave early, do the school run, that kind of thing. But for those who are men or don't have children, working flexibly is something that it's just a way of working that should be 
you know, accepted, not a judgment call to say that because you're a man, you need to do X or because you're a woman, you need to do X. Exactly. We seem like we have a little bit to go on that. On uh, that. I would say not so much a little, but actually quite a long, long way. But it's starting it's to shift. Starting, which, is, yeah. which is encouraging. Yeah. So if you're a business and you're a startup, I mean, how can they embrace flexible work? It sounds like something like the corporate end of town have more resources, more capacity, more time to write policies and yeah. have, a, have a varied workforce. I mean, if Absolutely. you're a startup, um, it's often all guns blazing. It's seven days a week. You kind of, you know, you might have a fun culture, but you may not be able to pay a lot. But I guess for some people, they're attracted to that or they're in the startup phase. That's so, right. you know, how, what can they learn? What can they learn from the corporates? What can they do to embrace flexible working? Well, the reality is most startups can't employ full-time but most people. So they're going to have to get people as and when they need them. So two days a week, three days a week. And most startups actually would prefer to have somebody that's available over a five-day period, let's say, Monday to Friday, even if it's only for a certain number of hours per day. Um, most startups also are very heavily involved from a technology perspective as well. So there's so many online collaborative tools like Slack, um, and, you know, Dropbox or OneDrive, depending on which system you use. So to be able to work from wherever you are, it becomes quite easy. The other thing is startups don't have money often, uh, often for like office space. So the fact that you've got salespeople running around, meeting potential clients and getting business on board, the fact is usually startups have somebody in Manila doing something from the, from a text space, you know, and doing that. Then they've got, a, you know, virtual EA up in Brisbane doing something. And then they've got sales in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, let's say. So in actual fact, the whole nature of a startup is incredibly flexible. Um, so when starting from scratch, one of the key fundamental aspects of creating a flexible culture Actually, learning from the corporates, I'd say it's the other way around. Corporates can learn from startups because you need trust. So when you already have such a geographically dispersed team, which a lot of startups do, you need to be able to trust, and that comes from hiring the right people and bringing those people in. Um, secondly, it's an understanding that not everyone's going to be immediately accessible whenever you need them, but that you have a really good technology system to support that. So like I said, Slack or other collaborative communication tools which are on your phone that you can immediately see no matter where you are that there's a conversation that needs your attention. So it's those kinds of things that make a massive difference in setting up a culture of an organization. If I think it's the other way around where startups need to be careful that as they grow and they become more maybe a medium-sized business and leave the startup land and they're becoming successful, which would be amazing for all startups. We know it's not true, but, you know, corporates often have much bigger juggernaut type organizations where it's harder to turn things around from a cultural perspective. So startups have a very unique position to start flexible and to grow and not fall into the trap of becoming inflexible rather than the other way around. Absolutely. And I guess when we're thinking about technology, I have to say running my own business, I mean, the one of the challenges always is Yes, you're flexible, but I do. You, do you need to be on twenty four seven? I mean, the technology is kind of. <laughs> I love it and I hate it. You yeah. know, it's lovely, but do you want to be staying on a soccer field, checking your emails constantly, yeah. or working on weekends, or feeling like okay, because I left at four o'clock on Thursday, you know, there is a price to pay, and it might yes. be five extra hours in your what would have been your weekend. I mean, how yeah. do you negotiate around that? Look, I think what you're talking about is also very relevant to those who work in corporate. I know when I negotiated flexibility for the first time, part of what I did was I overcompensated for the fact that I had flexibility by showing how reliable I am by being doing extra work and all the rest and financially not getting compensated for it. 
But over time, what I realized was two things. Firstly, there's a confidence in myself that I know that I can do the work in the time that's allocated to it. And who am I trying to prove this to? If there's a trust there between my boss or my employer, or if you're a startup, it's your clients or whatever it is. Um, who are you trying to prove it to? Do you need to go above and beyond every single time and then miss out those really key crucial times? Being on 24-7 is not healthy. So figuring out what that motivation to be on 24-7, um, I've worked in both startup and corporate land and even now, even more so technology makes it so easy to be able to be online all the time. I actually would, as a top tip, really focus on making sure that you have self-discipline around what you do. You could work forever if you really wanted to. There is no limit. Yeah, it, you know, it really I, isn't. Yeah. If I have 40 hours in the day, it wouldn't be enough. So it really comes down to I do, for example, as soon as I walk in through the door to be with my kids, I put my phone in my handbag and I don't answer it unless I'm waiting for a really super important call, which isn't really happens. I've had maybe that happen a handful of times with clients. Most of the time, I'm like, right, I'm with my kids It can now. wait. It really can. Everything can wait. Yeah. And once they go to bed, if I really need to, I will then do whatever I need to attend yeah. to. So there is a self-discipline because being on your phone or working like that can be quite addictive mm. and you can feel very productive when in actual fact you're not. No. So yeah. there is a balance between your own motivation to prove what you're doing in order to sort of, I guess, sort of be thankful for that flexibility. But at the same time, at what cost? I think that's great advice. I think we all need to sort of uh, be a little bit more disciplined sometimes. Yes. Um, So what motivates you personally to champion this cause? I mean, you've obviously had your own experiences in corporate Australia and and now heading up flex careers. I mean, what what is it for you? What sort of motivates you to do it? So for me, it's um, a number of different things. The first one is really about um, impacting the way that we work, particularly for women. Um, Women still aren't paid equally. Women still can't find jobs because they need that flexibility. Uh, There's still discrimination in the workplace. There's a lot of issues that women still have uh, going on. And it's something that I'm very passionate about. So for me, this doesn't feel like work to be able to know that I'm positively impacting uh, so many people's lives in a positive way way just you know I fly out of bed knowing that you know this is going to be a great day what great impact can I have but at the same time you know from a personal perspective as well I love creating and building something you know growing a business is also really just so exciting it's not easy by any means I'm sure you know Um, it can be incredibly challenging but my personal growth is um, exponential from doing it um, having said all that, my main motivation is that of the community and helping those um, that I can. But um, I love what I do. It's really very exciting. Well, it definitely shows through. <laughs> so <laughs> have you had any or do you have any sort of mentors, inspirational figures that you could sort of share with us, how you've drawn inspiration over the years? You don't have mm-hmm. to name them, but, you know. Sure. But what have they taught you? How do you keep How do you keep that sort of, you know, your own self-development, I guess, Absolutely. going as well? So over the years I've had um, one to two mentors. Um, I've currently got two mentors at the moment. Generally I've had one leading up to this role, but I felt that I needed to add to my other mentors. Um, I've also had coaches as well um, over the years. And so for me, a coach is great from an accountability perspective, really focusing on specific issues and and growing uh, in that area. And mentors for me really is to be able to tap into somebody else's experience. 
uh, for me to grow. So I got, uh, when I got this role, a mentor who's been a CEO of a number of companies because I thought, okay, I've never been the CEO of a company. Um, what's it all about? <laughs> what do I need to do? Um, that's different from leading a team, let's say, or um, running my own business. Um, and I found out that it's actually very different. So a mentor for me has been absolutely essential. Have um, you changed mentors over the years? Mm, or? Yes. Okay. I have as my career has shifted and changed. Absolutely. I think it's important to really make sure that when you do have a mentor that the relationship either can grow with you, but if you feel like you're not getting much out of it, it's totally fine to cut loose with that mentor and you'll always stay in touch with them and they'll always be your champion. And it's great to have that network and connection, but to seek somebody else out. Um, I think personal development is, um, look, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm very open-minded when it comes to our open mindset, when it comes to every situation. I don't look at failure as a bad thing. I look at it as, okay, well, I made a mistake, right? So what can I learn from that? For me, everything is about learning and growing and just doing better each and every time that I can. So if that's whether that be through, um, you know, going to courses, doing MOOCs, um, reading, watching things online or mentors or coaches, I think you can have too much, but, you know, at the same time for me, it's never enough. I can always learn more. What about things like hobbies? I mean, hobbies is such an outdated term, but, you know, you've got to have a life outside work. And I think a lot of us, particularly if you've got a young family and you've got a lot of demands, it's easy just to work, kids, bed, you know, maybe a little bit of exercise, but nothing that's really for you. So have Mm. you found, you know, as you've got, a more stressful position in some ways or more responsibility, you've mm. had to find more outlets. So, I mean, how do you fit yeah. it in? <laughs> how does one fit it in? You make it happen. It's about prioritizing. Your time is so precious that you really only are prepared to give it to the people and to the things that you know that if it's taking you away from the things that are important to you, then it has to be really good. So, for me, yes, I do have hobbies. Um, I do yoga two to three times a week. I meditate every day without fail. I don't know if that's a hobby or it's just a necessity for me. But like it, brushing your teeth, I guess, once you and start. You know, I you. do see it in that way. It, it really helps me set the tone for the day. It keeps my mind very um, flexible and um, lubricated and, and just really in the right headspace. No matter what happens, I'm not a stressed or anxious person. And even when things get very intense, I'm able to keep my calm because of that. But outside of that, you know, I love art and theatre, going to the movies, got a great book club with my friends, which has turned into a cheese and wine club oh, of as well. Uh, isn't that what they really are code for? Well, yes and no. <laughs> We're actually a very serious book and Excellent. I love to read. So for me, it's about, you know, expanding my mind with ideas, going to talks and stuff. And I don't see that as professional development. I see that as just my brain getting massaged and an occasional massage is quite nice. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We're going to wrap up. So if you close off by sharing, I guess a bit of your final manifesto for, for the audience, I mean, what be some steps or practical tips that you'd like to have out there in terms of the politics of flexible work? What, what's some of the, like maybe two or three things that need to happen. People can do today. Yeah. What's next? Okay, so I would say the first thing is know your worth. So it's important to disassociate the fact that with flexible work you need to reduce the amount of salary or remuneration that you're going to negotiate. So just be really clear on your value and your worth that's in the marketplace and don't move away from that. 
The next thing I would do is really think about, and if you don't know the different types of flexibility, to find out, and you can come onto the Flex Careers website. There's also other great resources out there to find out what does flexibility actually mean and think it out. Go into an interview knowing what, or if you're in an organization wanting to negotiate flexibility, um, what kind of flexibility would you be open to? And don't just pick one. Think about what would work and then uh, be a little flexible about that flexibility. You know, Think about what are the different kinds of things that you could possibly do to achieve what you're wanting to do. But have a very clear goal in your mind that if you're wanting to have the ability to pick up your children from school every day or a few days a week or whatever your goal is, how could that be achieved? And being, you know, finding a few ways to get there. Some places might be open to that. Others might say, look, we can't do it exactly that way. How else could we do that? Because we need to take into consideration it's not just what you need. There's a team, there might be clients, the business needs. There's a whole different, um, broader perspective. And on the Flex Career site, we actually have a toolkit to support people in that decision making process to help understand how to, to go about negotiating, uh, flexibility. The last thing I would be, um, aware of is your language. So I always focus on not asking for flexibility because asking means that you're in a position of less power and you're asking for something from somebody who's in more power. And if you would have heard throughout today's podcast, I've used the word negotiating flexibility and that's very intentional because if you go into a negotiation, that's usually two equal parties negotiating absolutely and it's it not has to be doesn't it it has to be but so many people don't see it that way it's i'm asking for flexibility and i have to give up and i have to do so much versus two equal parties coming together equally negotiating and discussing what it is needed what's the outcome how can we make this work that's excellent advice. Well, you've been listening to The Politics of Everything, and I'm Amber Danes. Um, hopefully, there's some great tips for you. If you do want to jump on the Flex Careers site, it sounds like there's some great advice for organizations as well as individuals looking for a life of flex. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Amber. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.